folks, and welcome, welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakajimam, again, and this podcast is brought to you, among others, by Native Shark, which is an online platform for learning Japanese. And what Native Shark do is they make learning Japanese really, really simple. You log in, you click a button that says study now, and the platform then shows you exactly what you need to learn next based on your previous progress. Now, again, this is simple, but the way it's designed means that students who use Native Shark once a day for four to five months can complete the equivalent of over two years of university study. And this is not just um, them patting themselves on the back. Now that Native Shark's been in business for over a year, the results are in. So this is exactly what people are saying. Uh, just looking at a couple of posts in their community forums. And the student community, by the way, is one of the best things about the platform. So one person's writing, most productive year I've had learning Japanese. And then another one says, I've started learning over a year ago with all of these other platforms. And what I learned there is only a fraction of what I've learned on Native Shark in just three months. And then yet another one goes, in my mind, my study timeline only started with Native Shark because that's when I really started learning consistently and on and on. So yet the proofs in the pudding, it's definitely the best online course out there. And since you've heard about it here on the podcast, you also get an extra little bonus. If you sign up for their free trial uh, using the URL nativeshark.com forward slash NTI, and we'll link to it in this episode's show notes. So that's native without an E. So N-A-T-I-V shark, all one word, dot com forward slash N-T-I. You use that link to sign up and you'll get a double length free trial. So two weeks free instead of just the one. No need to put in your credit card or anything of that sort. You can just sign up, give it a shot, and chances are at the end of these two weeks, you'll already be far ahead of wherever you are with your Japanese at the moment, whether you're just starting out or you're already in knee deep, give it a shot, nativeshark.com forward slash NTI. Okay, so for today's episode, um, this is a recording of a business call that I've had with a new client earlier this week, and he wanted some clarifications on the pros and cons of owning individual condo units or mansion rooms, as they're known here, versus owning whole buildings, which is a topic that we have discussed here in the past, but it's always good to revisit. And also he wanted to chat about the advantages and disadvantages of owning properties as individuals or under a corporate structure. Again, something that we've discussed here in the past on many occasions, but it's good to see how the two decisions actually correlate with each other and also how they might correlate with any existing structures um, that you may already have in place. And also how um, any existing company generating income which you have back home might be able to offer some added benefits if you set up a branch office and so forth. So we also discussed the differences between Japanese tenancy laws and tenancy laws in other countries, as well as the general nature of Japanese tenants. We talk about portfolio management, property maintenance, renovation, repair costs, and much, much more. So a really good, well-rounded conversation, which a lot of first-time property buyers, particularly investors, will probably find some value in. So enjoy, and I'll see you again on the other side. So I, I guess the reason I wanted to talk is one of the main issues that you um, were raising there was whether it would be more beneficial for you to own under an individual or a corporate ownership structure. Yes. And that, that really depends on... Um, what what that corporate structure is and what sort of other investments you've got as an individual or 
as a corporate. So could you maybe give me a bit of a rundown on what, uh, if you have any investments uh, elsewhere, what do they look like? What sort of assets, what sort of uh, returns they're yielding? Yeah. In the sense, uh, are they more growth oriented or more dividend oriented or what have you got at the moment? So personally, it's mostly stocks and those kind of investments. Okay. Uh, I own my house, so that would be, I guess, the, my biggest investment uh, as a one item thing. Uh, okay, but that's a, that's a if and when you sell it, it might gain some value in the sale, yeah? Yeah, but as it's my only... Uh, capital property that I own, there would be, there's no tax on that, more or less. There's no capital gains tax on that. Okay. In Canada, and your stock, anyway. your stock investments, are there more growth, blue chip kind of oriented or are they more of... Um, it's a uh, bit of both. A bit of both. Yeah. It's diversified around. Uh, uh, some stuff is for growth. Some stuff is for uh, dividends, you know, more for long okay. term. And then on the on my corporate side, there it's pretty much there is a little bit invested in the stock market, some of the excess cash uh, that I'm able to not to have to not need on a daily basis or a monthly basis. Uh, yeah. Other than that, it's there's some investment in some of the equipment that I have, but. Equipment depreciates, so I wouldn't really call it an invest. It's an investment to make money, but it doesn't generate its own money. Okay, so the company that you were talking about purchasing under, that's a company, I understand, that's already operating and generating income and so forth, yeah? Correct. Okay, so there are some tax advantages if you set up a branch office of the company here in Japan. Okay because then you can offset your profits and losses against each other in both countries. Okay. Um, and with real estate, particularly when you purchase properties um, as a corporate structure, you can carry your purchase expenses forward for five years as a company in Japan. Okay. So you would uh, uh, officially be uh, at a loss or at least at very low income for the first five years. And then you could use that loss or low income to offset your taxes um, um, in your home country. But the thing is, um, the, corporates, the corporate tax uh, is uh, fixed. It's at 20% or there's a few other municipal taxes or stuff like that might bring you up to 25, 26%. Yeah. Um, whereas your individual tax starts a lot lower than that. So it starts at around 5% for lower income streams. And there's a very, um, up to about $3,500 a year net. Um, it's also tax-free. Okay. With so that tax, is that just tax or is that just income generated within Japan or is that? Only on income generated within okay. Japan. But if you're, if you're, uh, if you're a corporate structure, then you would also need to hire an accountant from day one, even if you don't have any official income. Okay. And for companies, um, that would be, I'd say at the very least, that would be about $2,000 in accounting and bookkeeping fees a year. Yeah, which, which is pretty yeah. on, you know, on a very small level. That's pretty much the rent that you make in a year. Exactly. So if you're only planning on purchasing one or two smaller units, that's probably not worth your while, I would say. 
Um, unless there are huge tax benefits to be had. But again, if the entire income stream is, let's say, up to 5,000 bucks a year, I mean, how much tax benefit would you get from it? Yeah, right? yeah no, absolutely. Yeah. I know there you was... Have a, what, what was your plan with your Japanese investments? You've mentioned the first one uh, and then maybe expanding, but how far do you plan to expand? What sort of um, capital do you plan to deploy in Japan? Long term. It's, it, I think it depends very much on how the first one, like first one, two, three go. If everything yeah. really is smooth and, and it is very, like no heading, okay, it doesn't appreciate, that's one thing. But it, if it is relatively a safe investment with, you know, a, a decent return, you know, six, seven, eight percent. Uh, what I was very surprised at looking through some of the other bookings was like, you could buy a whole building for like a million bucks even less and a yeah. half yeah so i was like oh that's you know that's not so bad you pay a million bucks or a million and a half you get a whole building if you can make seven percent off of that it, and and if it is a safe investment it's uh it could be viable but as a non-resident that's going to be a cash purchase you're not going to be eligible for financing here yeah well that's yeah. fine well, if, if your long-term plan, assuming everything goes well, if your long-term plan is to deploy that sort of capital, then yes, it would definitely be worth setting up a corporate structure because um, your income tax as an individual would definitely go beyond that 20% if you, if you own a million, million, and yeah. let's just take, I'll just bring up the calculator. Um, let's say that you've purchased something for a million and a half. And then conservatively, let's say we're making 5% before tax. Sure. Okay, so that's uh, $75,000 a year. Okay. Once you, get, once you get past the, I, I want to say 30, $30 $35,000 a year, then yes, tax-wise, it does become more beneficial to, yeah. own, to own it under a company name. And that's even yeah. regardless of that's regardless of the tax benefits um, that you might be able to get by uh, utilizing the expenses that a company can, which is which are usually higher expenses than what an individual can claim. Okay, and then yeah. I think well, maybe to get started, it might be better to start like individual just to get the feet, like get a, a lay of the land. But is it very difficult to transfer from like a an individual? purchase to a corporate purchase it's not difficult but or is it or, or would it be just that the corporate would have to essentially buy it from the individual yeah so that's how it works you can't just okay. give it away so you have to purchase it at uh, relevant market price and then the purchase cost depending on if it's a, a cheaper property or a more expensive property for a cheaper property the uh, legal and registration fees that you would need to pay would be about uh, uh, between three to seven percent, depending on the official evaluation, and then your purchase tax, which the corporate would need to pay, would be again it varies depending on the eval, but it's approximately two and a half, two point six percent. Okay. And so you'd be paying about seven, let's call it seven to ten percent for the transfer. Okay. So it's definitely doable if at any point you want to. Um, but I mean, it could also be conceivable just if, you, if you're starting off with two or three smaller properties to leave those under your name. And just when you're actually planning to purchase a building, just put that directly under the company name down the track. Yeah. 
Oh yeah, well, yeah, that would be the idea. It's just how difficult would it be just to keep it all under one umbrella? Um, I mean, it's it's if, if but then again, if it's kind of too not too costly, but if it's well, the, the only cost, big if, disadvantage of having two ownership structures is that you'll have to pay double the accounting fees. But accounting fees for individuals are not that expensive. The accountant that we work with. Um, are you going to have the properties, um, let's say, on the individual front, are you going to have them just under your name or you and your wife's? Uh, I think either would be fine. <laughs> Whichever okay. one would be more advantageous, to be honest. Well, there'll be less taxes, but more accounting fees if you've got two statements to submit. So okay. if, you've, if you're working with an accountant that most of our clients work with, it's usually going to be um, about 100 bucks per property per annum. Oh, yeah, that sounds so bad. Yeah, and if you're owning them as individual, it might be 75 or $70 per property if it's not you and your wife. So even if you leave them under your name, the accounting fees that you're going to be paying extra are not, especially compared to the corporate, which is going to be about $2,000 uh, a year. Yeah. Um, it's not going to be significant, I think. So once... Once you start, once you really decide that you're going to be, so individuals can carry the purchase costs forward for three years, as opposed to the corporate five years. Okay. So if you're definitely don't think that you'll be purchasing, uh, start looking at buildings before three years are done, then I, I'm guessing you wouldn't need an accountant at all on the individual side, because you'd probably be under the reporting threshold, at least for the first three years. Okay. And then when it does, uh, when the time does come to start considering corporate ownership and more expensive properties, then you can hire an accountant and then they'll be able to also consult you on whether it'll be beneficial to transfer ownership or to keep them separate or what. Yeah. Now, out of um, the services you offer that, not, I know you're not an accountant and you don't do that, but you kind of help guide the way along or? Yes. So what we do for our customers is, um, whichever accountant they work for, but definitely if they work with the ones that we're yeah. working with regularly. So uh, we do the introduction, he'd quote you on their fees. And then if you decide to hire their services or any other accountant, you give us permission to share your documentation with the accountant. Yeah. Okay. And then we can do everything directly with them uh, on your behalf. So we just supply them with whatever information they need. Yeah. And that would be like on an ongoing yearly basis. That's correct. Yes. You take care of it, and okay, and that's okay. Well, I mean, we'll have to ask you some questions once in a while, but oh, yeah, yeah no, yeah, obviously, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, okay, that makes sense. And just out of curiosity, how does if someone like for someone residing within Japan, does it like does the tax structure change quite a bit? And uh, not the income and corporate tax uh, per se, but if you're a resident, there are a few more municipal taxes that residents need to pay that you're exempt from. Okay. Um, but those are pretty minute amounts. The real savings that you'd be able to make if you're living in Japan is just you wouldn't have to use our services for portfolio management. Mm. So depending on your level of Japanese and whether or not uh, your wife would be willing to, to get involved as the contact person. So you could potentially, between you and your wife, you could deal with the property management, the insurance company, the building management, all of the third parties that you need to deal with on a regular basis, you could potentially deal yeah. with directly. Okay. Well, and then that would save you about, I mean, we charge about 30, the minimum is $30 a month per property. So 3,000 yen. Yeah, plus uh, tax, per, I 
2,800 plus tax. Oh, so it works out to be about 30, 30, 80. Yeah, 30 uh, and change, yeah. Yeah. So we charge that per property per month. And we also charge the same amount once a year uh, to be your tax representative for property tax. And so that's what you would be able to save. And if you own a building, so, so that fee is our minimum fee. We have to charge at least that even for smaller properties. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's basically 2% of the gross rental income plus tax. So if you own a building that's generating, um, I don't know, let's say $4,000, $5,000 a month, uh, then you'd be saving 2% of that. Okay. Also, oh, it's 2% of the income. Of the gross rental income. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, and out of curiosity, if you're building like a million or a million and a half dollar portfolio, would it be better to buy a building or just a variety of different either uh, condos or, or houses? But there's advantages and disadvantages to both. With um, The advantages of buildings is A, that you've got a bigger land plot. Uh, when you buy condo units, you get a, a tiny land plot that's distributed between all of the owners of the building. They distribute the land plot that the building stands on between all of the owners. So you get two, three meter, two, two three square meters of land. Okay. And um, unless the property is very well located, um, that probably dictates a lower potential growth um, because that's mostly dependent. The, the growth is mostly dependent on the land whereas the structures just tend to depreciate, not gain in value. So if a property yeah. gains in value, it's usually because the location and the land is gained in value. So with a building, you get a larger land plot. So if and when things go well, you do stand to gain more in capital growth. Okay. And the other advantage is um, that depending on local municipality uh, bylaws, but you, you have a lot more freedom with the building to do short-term rentals, to convert some of the units into offices. So you got a wider tenant base to appeal to. And the renovations are entirely your call. You can do whatever you want with the structure because you own all of it. Whereas if you own individual units, you're limited to whatever the owner union allows in that building. So for example, Airbnb, real, real short-term rentals are almost always a no-no. Yeah. Um, you could, in some buildings, you could get away with monthly rentals as opposed to long-term leases. So you could slightly tweak your income that way and, and increase the cash flow a little bit, but not much. You don't have the creative freedom that you'd have if you owned the entire structure. Okay. And with and the entire structure, also, if at some point it's not worth to renovate anymore, you could just tear it down and you know build a house there or build a logistics facility or build, turn it into a parking lot. That's just You just get more creative freedom. Is it... Is it easy to kick somebody out? It like to do that or? Um, not really, but it's doable. So awesome. most of the leases in Japan are renewable leases, meaning that if you want, if you don't want to renew it, the tenant does have some legal protection. Um, Japanese tenants, as a rule, are not very confrontational. So it's very rare that anybody will take you to court if you're telling them you're not going to renew the contract. But if you really want a smooth sailing there, then you can just offer them that you're going to pay for the move-in fees, for example. So you pay them a oh, few yeah. thousand bucks and um, and help them yeah, move so into a new apartment. Yeah, so it's nothing yeah. crazy. Usually not. But look, I mean, having said that, you could get a very stubborn 80-year-old guy that's lived there all of his life and doesn't want to move out. So the newer, also the newer the property is, the more likely the tenants are going to be more young professional types rather than old, you know, destitute pensioner types. 
Um, so there's a bit of an advantage yeah. to purchasing something a bit fresh. Um, but the disadvantage with the building is that everything is on you. So there are no monthly fees that go towards repairs and renovation of the structure. You need to set money aside for whatever needs to be done in the building itself. Yeah. yeah. Which comes so, out of the rent. Which comes out of the rent. Yeah. So it, it's a good idea, depending on how old the building is, it's a good idea to set aside somewhere between 5 to 15% of the rental income for potential, or at least have that money ready in case something yeah. suddenly needs to be done. And then is it better, like on that size of portfolio, would it be better sticking residential or going more industrial or or a logistic um, center or, or something like that? Well, real hardcore industrial is probably going to be a bit beyond a million, million and a half. I'd say but, probably yeah. started around three, four. Um, but the other advantage with the building is that you'll often find buildings where the um, the ground floor is shops or offices and then the other two, three, four floors are residential. So you get a bit of a diverse mix. And you okay. could also, because it's your building, you can designate that you're going to be renting out the, the units either as residential or as offices. There are a lot of companies and um, self-employed individuals, like, for example, uh, lawyers and accountants and little English schools and little hairdressers that just operate out of normal residential apartments. Oh, really? Yeah, it's quite okay. popular, depending on the location, but it's, it's a quite popular setup for them. It's a lot cheaper than a downtown office kind of thing. So you get a bit more diversity in the tenant base, but if you own all of your assets in the one address, in the one location, then you lose a bit of diversity that you would get if you'd be able to spread them around the country kind of thing, right? Yeah. But so I'm assuming that's something you could kind of guide. That's one of the services you can always kind of guide, like, oh, look here, look there. What do you mean? Uh, that's one of the services you can offer is to kind of guide uh, kind of the lay of the land what's i guess what would be the most the best position to be in yeah absolutely as, and we'll evaluate deals on a case-by-case -case basis we'll let you know uh, which one looks more or less attractive but i think the decision to aim for buildings versus individual units is more of a decision that we'll probably need to make before we start doing research because there's yeah. there are going to be attractive deals on both ends okay it's more a case of i, I would say that yeah, I mean, it's it's a um, capital and risk appetite combination. So if you're confident that you would be able to put money towards renovation and repair um, and you do want the, the potential future creative freedom that comes with owning your own structure, then I would probably direct you towards a building because the growth potential is higher and you're able to do a lot more with it. Whereas with a unit, you're very limited in your options. But if you really want to play it, super safe and stable and not have any huge unexpected expenses and just always know that whatever you pay monthly is what's going to cover everything that needs to be done. And then I'd probably direct you towards individual units. Okay. Yeah. And there's also, the, um, there's also the hassle factor. I mean, you're not managing them directly, so you only need to speak to us. So that takes some of the hassle out. But still, when you're dealing with... Um, 10 individual units that are managed by 10 different property managers and the tenant mm -hmm. profiles are very different because in Sapporo, you'd have older tenants in Fukuoka or, or Tokyo, you'd have younger tenants. So there are more decisions to be made on a more regular basis. Whereas with a building, you've got a single property manager managing the entire thing and that the tenant profiles are quite similar because all of the units are quite similar in, in structure and location. Um, okay, yeah. and, and there's the a building, bit less decision making involved, that's all. 
and the building, like the building management company that would be hired, they take care of tenants. Finally, if so, if, uh, filling vacancies in units and all yes. of that as well. So they're yeah. the ones who are in charge of finding new tenants and handling any tenant requests and chasing up money if somebody doesn't pay, which is quite rare in Japan. Yeah. Um, if you're owning a individual units then the building management company that actually takes care of the building is hired by the owner union that's a separate company mm. and yeah. then that's a different entity that we have to deal with every month just to pay payments and um, they have uh, annual meetings then people owners need to make decisions and tick if they're voting to repair the stairway or not repair the stairway this year stuff like that if you own the entire building, then the property management company is also going to take care of the building for you. It's going to be the same company. Okay. Uh, one thing on the unit we were discussing uh, before, one thing that, or one, how you mess, how you uh, mentioned that it's, Japan has very strict uh, tenant privacy laws, which in Canada and the U.S. is not that we don't have the same kind of laws, but when a house is for sale, you pretty much can know everything, the inside, the outside. It's staged to sell. Yeah, right? you don't enter. You don't. You can't enter a unit. Once. Yeah, which is bizarre. So, is it kind of you're taking a risk to when you're looking for a property, or? Um, I would say officially yes, but in practice, Japanese tenants tend to be very docile. I mean, they never it's very rare that there'd be something wrong with the interior of a property and the tenant wouldn't immediately report it and ask it to get it fixed. Okay. Um, I mean, you're, you're married to a Japanese person. You know that they like to um, dot all the I's and cross all the T's yeah. and everything needs to be chanto, 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 right? So uh, there's, there's a very low risk of anything being seriously wrong with the unit. And we always we always speak to the existing property manager to find out uh, when the last renovation was done and when the tenant moved in and we'll know. So we know, for example, um, let's say you had a relatively youngish, young professional type tenant who moved in two years ago. And it's very unlikely there's going to be a huge renovation to do when they move out. Okay. But if you had an elderly gentleman in their 70s, especially if they're male, and they've been living in the unit for eight or 10 years, and in many cases, these guys just constantly leave the windows closed and smoke like a chimney inside. And uh, so you would, when that tenant moves or passes away or goes on to a nursing home or whatever, then you would need a pretty significant renovation. There's going to be a lot of mold. You might need to replace the entire bathroom. You might need to definitely would need to replace all of the wallpaper and the flooring and so forth. Yeah. So we can sort of gauge by the tenant profile and the length of the tenancy and give you a rough idea of what you're looking at when they move out. I have two questions. One, like, what would be a worst case scenario for all those rentals generally? Is it like it depends grand? on the size of the units. So if you're looking at your typical studio or one bedroom units, um, complete renovation would be worst case, maybe a million and a half, two million. Yeah. Yen, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that this is for those typical cash cows that are, let's say, up to 20, 25 square meters. Sure. Million? Um, million and a half, that's what... 15,000 15, worst case yeah not much not yeah, much and that would include the 
that would include a brand new bathroom. But look, we're saying not much, yeah. but if the entire unit costs five million, that's a significant expense, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm comparing it to renovation costs here, which you're looking maybe like a hundred, hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Yeah. Well, if you got a U.S. or Canada-sized house in Japan, then it could yeah. be about a hundred thousand. Oh, even yeah. even for uh, even for an apartment, it's, apartments are fairly, or just a bathroom story, are very expensive just to renovate. Well, that's the advantage of the Japanese unit bath. Yeah. It's a self-contained plastic piece that just goes yeah. in and out. So those are usually less than $10,000. they are the biggest part of the renovation usually. That's good to know. And then for the rest of the... Uh, we normally use a, a rule of thumb of uh, somewhere between $500 to $800 per year of tenancy. Okay. For those smaller one-bedroom or studio units. And then the second question, all that information about the tenants, do you find that once you make an offer, once you kind of start the more serious phase yes. of acquiring? Okay. Yeah, so because it's a very fast-paced market, especially in the more attractive locations and cities, um, the agents and the sellers don't really go out of their way to provide full due diligence before they've got a serious offer on the table. Yeah. Um, so what we do is when we submit the offer, we always write on it that it's uh, pending due diligence. So we want to see the tenant history and we want to see the building's renovation history and how much they've got collected in the reserve funds in case of an individual unit. Um, if you're buying a building that's older than, say, 10 years old, then we would also ask the seller to tell us what he's done with the building, what sort of repairs and renovations they've done. If you're buying something that's, say, up to 10 years old, then probably they haven't done much in any case yet. Okay. And so all of that will be made available to us in most cases after the offer. Sure. The only cases where the agent would already have this information is if somebody already applied and then pulled back for any reason, and then they might have had, might have it handy. But in most cases, it'll be after the offer. Mm -hmm. And then if the offers are not legally binding, so if there's anything in that information that we don't like, we can amend the offer price or pull back altogether. Um, but we would really much rather not do that without a substantial reason yeah. because that would burn our relationship with that realtor that's not yeah. really done in japan no no i agree uh, but and if i from what i understand as well when the when you make an offer pretty much your offer is uh, it's not like an auction it's not no. like oh i'll offer you know a hundred thousand someone else will offer 150 oh i'm gonna go with him instead it's is over, kind of first come first serve or yeah overbidding is very rarely done in japan we've almost never seen it done um there are some discounted offers that people make and we often try depending on the property and what we think is possible we might try to offer 10 maybe in severe cases 15 percent off but not much beyond that okay and um, if the property is vacant it's a different story if the property is vacant it's not generating any income then we might be able to get in a bigger discount yeah, um, but then first come first served at least in the sense that so let's say you submitted an offer at a discount a 10% off and then somebody comes in and offers full price um, then the agent in most cases would let you know and give you a chance to raise your price because you are first in line okay. um, but it does sometimes happen that the seller is advertising with a few agents and then if an offer comes in from another source then the seller might or might not give a stuff so they might let oh, you yeah. raise your offer and they might not but oh, if it's okay. the same if it's the same agent receiving the other offer they'll always let you know in advance yes oh that, that's that's interesting 
I didn't know they were able to list with different agents. Oh, that's good to know, though. Yeah. Some, some agents ask for exclusivity, but most of them uh, are advertised in a few places. Oh, good to know. Cool. No, it's... Uh, I... Pretty much I'm comfortable with moving forward. Uh, okay. With a one unit, it's just... I guess it was just kind of getting, you know, you know, dotting the I's, crossing the T's, making sure I understand the lay of the land. Yep. Uh, um, so another important thing to to recognize, I'll just add that, and then I'll tell you how to start. So the, sure. another important thing to note is that because of the law being very tenant oriented here, the tenancy leases are um, a lot more obligating to you than they are to the tenants. So you're not allowed to kick the tenant out. But if a tenant moves out, let's say within the first two years of the lease, um, all you'll get from them is a month or two in compensation, not more than that. Okay. They're definitely not gonna, like in Australia or the US, they might have to pay you until you find a new tenant. That's not gonna happen here. So the most you'll get out of them is one or two months of rent extra. And then beyond the first, beyond the first two years, um, even mid-lease, all they need to do is give you a month's notice and they can move out. So. The fact that they've got a lease in place that's only going to be running out in a year and a half doesn't really mean much when you're yeah. looking at a property. So I wouldn't evaluate them based on the length of the lease remaining or anything like that. Actually, out of curiosity, how long are leases typically? Typically, it's a two-year renewable lease. So if nobody gives any notice, it just automatically gets renewed. Um, the renewal fee is usually the equivalent of one month of rent that's payable to the property manager. In most cases, when we um, place a tenant ourselves, then we would include in the contract that the tenant is the one responsible for the renewal fee. But in cases where we inherit a property with an existing tenant, then it might be in the lease, it might not be. So if you purchase a property that's already tenanted, it might be you who needs to pay the renewal fee when the, uh, when the lease is due for renewal. Okay, yeah, no problem. Um, okay, so to get started, I'll need you to first give me an email with a clear criteria. So budget, preferred locations, um, minimum, maximum age of building, minimum, maximum yield, um, anything that comes to mind, distance from a station. I mean, we can definitely advise on that too. Yeah, I think I need your help on those. Yeah, but no, yeah I'll, I can... I'll give you some pointers into what most people are, are looking into and what we believe are uh, probably good criteria to have. Um, but what I will need from you as a, as a get-go is your budget and the minimum and uh, net pre-tax yield that you can live with. So uh, maximum, okay, Let me maximum, just budget, maximum budget and minimum net pre-tax yield. Sure. And then based on that, I can make recommendations as to the rest of the criteria. And we'll need our two engagement documents signed and witnessed by a notary public uh, is best. If you don't have access to a notary public, we can work out some other kind of witness, but they have to be a really official stamp kind of witness. Okay. Notary public on notary public is the Canada best. Is fine. Yeah, but in Canada is no problem. Okay. And then we need our fee estimate paid in advance for the first purchase. For the second purchase and onwards, we can charge you after settlement because we're already managing your funds here. Sure. But for the first purchase, we need that fee estimate paid in advance. And then depending on what the actual price of the property is going to be, we're going to credit or debit you post-settlement. Okay. So if you end up paying us for a 5 million property and you decide to get a 4 million, well, our minimum is a 5% of 5, 
five million. But if you end up getting uh, something that's six or seven million, then we'll debit you for the difference after the settlement. Sure. And once that's done, we'll be able to, I mean, we can start sending some potentials for review your way anyway, but we're not going to be able to contact agents or sellers and, and make offers until we've got that uh, payment issue sorted. Yeah, well, that's, yeah. And I'm assuming bank transfer is no problem. It's not, but if you want to save on uh, bank fees and rates, I'll send you a link. Do you have, are you working with OFX or TransferWise or any of the uh, Forex providers yet? I'm working with XE.com. XE do transfers or does just give you rate? I didn't know they do transfers. No, they do transfers. Um, okay. But uh, I believe it's just like a wire transfer or something. I think the, the other people you mentioned might be more better suited. Okay, so I'll give you a link. We're, um, we've been working with OFX since we started for about 10 years now, and they're very good as far as communicating. I mean, the, the rates are similar between TransferWise, OFX, and all the rest of them, but with OFX, we've got a corporate account manager that's accessible to all of our clients as well. And we do get better rates because we refer a lot of people to them. So you would get those better rates as well. So I'll send you a link um, with a partner referral join fee, uh, join link, and then you click on that, join them, They'll probably ask you for some ID documents and so forth. And then that'll okay. probably be the cheapest and most efficient way to uh, remit funds across. Sure. And the way we're like all the rental income that's earned uh, after fees and tax and all that, it's you guys keep it. Yeah. So because you're you open. Uh, actually, your wife might have a bank account in Japan, no? Yeah, she does. Okay. Well, would you like? the property managers to deposit the rent and set the building auto deductions from her account or do you prefer us to hold on to it for you and remit it to you when you want it uh let me talk oh. with her but i think yeah. it might does it on your side does it make a difference or we don't charge you anything extra for that no no well in terms of making life easier for you i don't worry about this it's part of the service we offer that's okay. fine most okay, of our customers don't don't have bank accounts here yeah, let me talk with her and we'll figure it out. Okay, no worries. So it, it, supposing that you do do it through us, um, we collect your income, we pay your expenses on a regular basis. Obviously, if there's any unusual expense, we'll ask you beforehand, uh, unless it's an emergency. If it's like electric or water matter that um, is considered life-threatening by law, then we yeah. have to immediately fix it. But anything else we'll ask you uh, before we make any uh, payments on your behalf. And then we send you an annual statement to tell you uh, which uh, itemizes all of the income and expenses and gives you the annual balance. And then whenever you want to, just let us know, we'll remit funds to you. And if you want, if you see that the um, exchange rates have suddenly peaked in your favor and you want a remittance in the middle of the year, then we can just provide you with a rough estimate and remit based on that. Mm. Uh, if we overshoot, we can just recoup it from your rental income. So it's no worries for us. Awesome. Cool. All right. So I'll send you those uh, documents and uh, you reply to me with your max budget and minimum yield requirements and we'll take it from there. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Appreciate Pleasure. It. Good speaking with you. Yeah, thank you very much. Bye. So there you go. Hopefully a lot of valuable info there, particularly for first-time investors again. And if you'd like to also have a short chat to discuss your individual scenario and your purchase plans, please feel free to drop us a line. We're always happy to talk shop free of any charge, any obligation. And we can also have these conversations without recording them. So no, you don't have to be on the podcast if that's a concern. In fact, the vast majority of our conversations are off the mic and off the record. So don't be shy. 
email us on info at nippontradings.com and we'll happily book a day and a time to discuss any topic that you might be interested in as long as it's related to Japan's real estate property market. Now, before we go, we're also, as always, going to tell you and also link to our other sponsor's website. That's Hiroshi Shimizu, immigration lawyer and administrative scrivener. If you're thinking about moving here on a more permanent basis or you are already in Japan on some sort of a more temporary visa and you want to switch to a longer term or permanent one, and also if you're considering setting up a local company or branch office of a foreign company and you've got any sort of business or visa-related inquiry, or even if you just want to find out what your options are on any of these topics, feel free to contact Hiroshi Shimizu. You can find him at japanimmigrationexperts.com and he can help you set up a company, apply for any kind of visa, or just provide you with the best advice and extremely affordable consultation related to these topics. And he's already done that for many of our listeners and our clients. So feel free to reach out to him. Again, that's japanimmigrationexperts.com, all one word, and you'll be well on your way. And that's it from us for today, folks. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Real Estate Podcast. Do share it with your networks and please let us know what you think. So leave us a short rating review on the iTunes store, on Spotify, wherever you're tuning in from, or just drop us a line in the comments section or wherever you might have found this episode. We love hearing from you. Hope to have you with us again next time. And until then, have a great day or night ahead. Yoshiku. Yoshiku.